And from this book of Acts chapter 8, we catch the story now, continuing of this early church, this flourishing church. This church that's really on the move, of course it is. God can do miracles, and the early church is a miracle. It's a flourishing church that's about to break out of its Jerusalem confines. I don't know if you've ever heard the story. I love to tell the story of the atheist who, walking through town one night, saw the local church on fire. He called for help and grabbed a bucket, and the brigade of those in the fire crew came, and they were passing the buckets to throw the water to douse the flames of the church. And one deacon in that particular Baptist church saw the atheist and said, Well, I've never seen you in this church before. And he said, I've never seen this church on fire before either. <laughs> So when there's something going on on the inside, when a church is growing, flourishing, multiplying, when it's healthy, when it's alive, when it's vibrant, when it's on fire, it definitely, definitely attracts some attention. And this first church does just that. Against all odds, this church should have never survived, and yet it's thriving now, still, because it's his church, and as he leads, he supplies everything it will ever need to succeed in the task he's given it to make disciples of all nations. We saw last week they committed themselves, they devoted themselves to what? To, to discipleship, to going deeper, to fellowship, to connecting and to building relationships, to worship in that sense and awe and power of God's presence in their midst. And i got to tell you this morning, I don't know uh, who else in this room God was really speaking to, but Beverly and I were ground zero for God's voice of reassurance this morning. Hello? I mean, God is speaking in this place. God is moving in people's hearts and lives. There are so many stories like the Becknells, and yet totally different, and yet the same. God is faithful. God is good, and God is working. You can trust Him. So we talked about their commitment or their devotion to discipleship, to fellowship, to worship, and to stewardship, yes, because they used what they had to help others who didn't have what they needed, meaning from the scriptures, they had glad and generous hearts. And that just doesn't affect the material and the physical needs that people have all around us every day. Those are not unimportant. They are important. Sometimes we have to meet those needs before we can get to the deeper need that needs to be met. But the early church was generous not only with the physical things, it was generous with the spiritual things. Because this early church freely and generously shared what they had, the gospel that they had, the good news of Jesus inside the church, they shared it with everyone outside the church. With their lost neighbors, their friends, family members, extended family members, beyond their communities, even to the nations. And why not? Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses, Acts 1.8, in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of of the earth. That's what they were doing. Except that seven chapters later in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we've gone from 1 8 to 8 1. Guess where they are? Seven chapters later, Acts 1 8 to Acts 8 1, guess where they are? Still gathered in Jerusalem. Still gathered right there in their own city where all of this started. I want you to read with me from Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And notice something here. And Saul approved of whose execution? Stephen's, of course. This sentence really belongs in the seventh chapter with the story of the first Christian martyr, the death of Stephen. And so we see here, beginning in Acts chapter 8, the church, a flourishing church, albeit, still faces 
difficulties, challenges, obstacles, opposition. It still faces adversity. In fact, this isn't the first that we've seen. It just intensifies here. In chapter 4, we see the apostles receive a warning. In chapter 5, we see they take a beating for the sake of the gospel. And here in chapter 7 and 8, there's a killing. The first Christian martyr, Stephen, the death of Stephen, we see is adversity for this early church. In the context of flourishing and growing, there is this terrible loss. Not an apostle, by the way, not the apostle Stephen. He's deacon Stephen, selected just in chapter 6 as we've passed over to help distribute food, to to literally be a servant, a table waiter, to the Hellenist or the Greek-speaking widows who felt underserved in the ministry of the church. So he was a deacon, but he clearly did more than wait tables and take care of the widows. Stephen shared the gospel. And not only did he share the gospel, he shared it in such a powerful way that he got the attention of the people all around him. They began to notice, and then they began to listen. And what he said wasn't exactly what they wanted to hear because he called them to account, to account for their sin and to their rejection and to their rebellion and to what they had done to Jesus. And so they gathered around him and stoned him. They killed him. They murdered him right there on the streets of the city. It was his truth, conviction. It was his courage in the face of opposition that ultimately cost him his life. But we would have to dispute with him, wouldn't we, if we could ever sit down and have a conversation. If I said, Stephen, your courage and your conviction cost you your life, what would he say? I suppose he would challenge me on the question, what do you mean cost? What are you talking about cost me? didn't cost me anything. I gave. I think Stephen would say, I read the story, the sermon, I I see his testimony. I think Stephen would say, I sowed my life. I planted. I invested. I gave my life for the sake of God's kingdom, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He'd be the first, but not the last, of many Christian martyrs throughout the history of the church. Men and women, boys and girls, who willingly went to death because they refused to recant their faith, to change their mind, to deny Jesus. The early church was full of them, and the church history is still full. I was just this last week with the International Mission Board and heard the stories of our first missionaries in the last century loaded their worldly possessions into wooden coffins, boarded ships for faraway places, Symbolically on the one hand, but in the reality of the other, they knew they would never be home again. They were literally going to die. When I read those stories, the book of the martyrs, when I hear those stories of our missionaries, when I hear those stories of preachers and of photographers, when I hear of everyday ordinary people who just stand their ground and stand for what they believe in, they stand on truth and they take a terrible blow. They pay a very high price. Some of them give their lives. It sure helps me put my little things, my little inconveniences, those little things that might make me uncomfortable, those little prices that I may be called on to pay, that little cost that I might be called on to absorb. It sure puts things in perspective, doesn't it? Because I mean, to date, none of us in here have been called to give our very lives. But don't think others have not. The church faced incredible adversity. 
the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr who gave his life for his faith, which touched off an incredible persecution. Uh, Listen again. And Saul approved of his execution, Stephen's. And there arose on that day a great persecution, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul, oh my goodness, Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So with this death of Stephen, the church's first martyr, seemed to have called out something within Saul of Tarsus. He's not Paul yet. He's still Saul. We heard his name in chapter 7. We see him now in chapter 8. It's Saul of Tarsus, this Pharisee who is later to reveal his zeal for God and for the law of God. Even in ignorance. And we see here a growing hatred for these followers of the way. These Christians. These Jesus people. So much so that in verse 1 of chapter 8. He approves of an execution of one who simply said Jesus is the way. And in verse 3 he lets out in ravaging of the church. That word ravage is like a wild animal that tears the flesh from bone. That was Saul's mission. I wonder if you've ever had anyone in your life who was out to get you. Do you know what I mean? I mean, like somebody who it seemed to you just made it their life's mission to make your life miserable. Do you know? Not your spouse. I don't mean your spouse. I'm not talking about your mother-in-law. I'm not talking about, you know. Just think about this for a minute. Has there been anybody on the job or or at school? You know, we've all, somewhere back there, probably for most of us, there's just that somebody who just had it in for us. You didn't really know why. You never really gave them a great reason for it. They never gave you a great, they just sort of locked in on you and and made it their mission to make you as miserable as they could. I bet most of us have somebody, bless them right now in Jesus' name. Just go ahead and bless them right now. Lord, bless, bless their heart, right? Because I don't want you to think of anything else except blessing right now. But I'm trying to call you back into your memories to be reminded of the daily reality of the early church. When Saul of Tarsus was ripping the flesh from the bone of Christians throughout Jerusalem. He was after them. Breathing threats against them. And he could back up his threats. He wasn't just a blowhard. He, he could really act. He had the law behind him. He had the Sanhedrin behind him. He had the army behind him. And when he came in, he came in with great force and power. And he left great destruction in his wake. Now, you're a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus. You don't know quite yet all that that means. You just know that you've heard this story and it awakened some belief and faith in your heart. You've trusted in this Jesus. You want to follow him. You want to be with these people. And yet there's this guy who's made it his mission to make your life miserable. What do you do? You sit down and have a conversation? Let's talk this out, Saul. Let's get a mediator in here. Try to negotiate how we can both... You don't understand. There's no coexistence here. He wants you gone. Out. There's no compromise possible. Are you with me? 
I'm, I'm setting the stage here for what the early church in the context of its newest days, I mean really just really taking root, just really getting started. We're within days and weeks here of this whole thing happening and somebody stands up and said, I'm going to make it my life's mission to wipe you people out. Hey, would you, would you still be in church today if, if that were happening today? Would, would, would we still be here What would happen to attendance in the average church in America if there was a Saul of Tarsus breathing threats against the church who could back it up with action and who was ravaging the church? Or would we be conveniently (laughs) unavailable to gather together? Would you be here anyway? Would you come, come what may? I, I don't guess any of us can honestly answer that question until we're in that situation. But can I tell you today, all over the world, there are people who believe what you and I believe who are doing what we're doing today, knowing that at any moment someone could come through any one of these doors and wreak havoc on us. Oh, it's so good to be an American Christian in the great state of Texas. And to have incredible law enforcement and people here to help us and to watch over us and to protect us. I want you to get a sense of what it might feel like if the world, if the devil decided to wreak havoc on the church. Oh, wait, that's all that happened. And we actually are living in that reality, aren't we? Did, did you think This was just a walk through the park on a Sunday afternoon with a nice warm cup of Starbucks. Birds singing, gentle breeze blowing. Did you think that when you said yes to Jesus, that was like a cruise ship, like a pleasure cruise? Did you not realize this is a battleship? Did you not know that when you say yes to Jesus, the world says no to you? I just want us to feel for a moment the weight of what the early church must have felt. Talk about outsiders. No support from the government, hello. No local law enforcement to rescue them. Just Saul of Tarsus who says, if I find you, I'm going to kill you. The early church faced the death of Stephen, the persecution of Saul, and finally they faced the scattering of their members. The scripture says, you read it, I heard it, Uh, did you hear me? Uh, They were scattered, the great persecution, and they were all scattered, verse 1 tells us. Scattered. Like the wind just blew in and just blew it all away. Have you ever had that, like have something on a table there, and and the window's open and a breeze, a gust comes through, and and it just blows it off, and you're gathering, trying to get it back, because it's just been scattered, it's gone, what a mess, it's everywhere, oh my goodness. Close that window. Keep that wind from coming in here, blowing away all that we were doing here. Well, that's what happened in Jerusalem. It's just wind of adversaries, uh, of adversity, of persecution blew into the church and scattered the people of the church just about everywhere. And think about the frustration of that. I mean, they had just come together. They were just getting to know each other. They're still doing crowd warmer-uppers, you know what I mean? Icebreakers. They're they're just now getting to know each other. They're just now meeting new friends and new family members of this new faith group called Christianity. And I know they must have felt terribly unprepared 
to be sent out that soon, to be thrown out that soon, to be driven out that soon. They hadn't even read through the whole Bible yet. They hadn't memorized the top 25 Bible verses in the New Testament yet. There's still so much left to learn and so much more to know. Surely they're not prepared. They must have felt at some level terribly defeated. As what was gathering and building has been scattered. Like the scattering of, of a campfire. Have you, have you ever been out and around a campfire? You know how you, you put that out. You, you just spread it out. That's how you do it. You, you spread it out. We, so many times we use the illustration of staying in the fire to stay hot. But now what's happened is the wind is blowing. It's spread the coals. You just rake the coals away from one another. You isolate and separate the coals. You pull the wood away. You pull the fuel away. You just spread it out. Spread it out. Spread it out. And within just a moment or two, this fire will, will, will die. It's, it's over. It's been dispersed. It's been scattered. It's, it's, it's exactly what happened to the early church. And that warmth they felt, that power... That better together they must have experienced was seemingly gone. And they were suddenly alone and on their own. And let me pause right here and give you three quick things to remember. And maybe you'll jot these down in your notes. I hope you will. When you're facing adversity in any area of your life, doesn't matter what area it is. It could be in your finances like we've been talking about with Flourish and Multiply. could be at school. could be on the job. could be at your home. could be on the sports field. When you face opposition, number one, expect opposition. When walking with Jesus, expect opposition. That's number one. I mean, when they rejected Jesus, they didn't stop. They did everything they could to stop him, and they even crucified him. And according to Jesus, we should expect the same. Jesus said in John 15, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So, don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. If you're standing for Jesus and somebody stands against you, you might consider whether that was an indication you shouldn't be standing or you might consider that affirmation that you're standing for the right thing. But don't be surprised. Peter said it this way, 1 Peter 4. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So don't be surprised when you stand for Jesus. Expect opposition. Number two, trust God in the midst of your trials and your troubles. Trust God. Those songs are so true. We sing them because they give voice to the expression of our heart to speak truth. That God is faithful and you are his, so he'll be faithful to you. And in the times of difficulties and adversity and persecution, the first thing we want to do is doubt God. We want to doubt his love for us or his ability in us or his desire for us. But don't doubt, believe. It's the devil who lies, not God. So in those moments when you're in your trials, when you're in the midst of your troubles, choose faith over fear. You cannot have them both. You cannot have them both. You faith God or you will fear your enemy. Fear God, yes. Faith God, yes. And you will have no need to fear your opposition. 
Make that daily decision to trust and to believe in God and to have faith in God. Believe his promises to you. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Believe that. Hold on to that in the midst of your trials. When you're talking to God in the midst of a difficult time, when you're opposed, when you have a challenge in front of you, say, God, you can deliver me from this or you can deliver me through it, but I know you're going to deliver me one way or the other. I trust you, Lord. And thirdly, you're writing this down, expect opposition, trust God, keep moving. Keep moving. Keep moving forward by faith. As I can promise you this, God is always working. He's using your trials and your troubles and your difficulties, the opposition that's against you. God will use for his glory and ultimately for your good, for our good, for the good of the gospel. So remember that things happen to us that we cannot control. But what we can control is what we do next. What we do next is how we want to be remembered. And it's how we make the greatest impact. And it's how our lives make the greatest difference. It's not what happens to us. It's what we do next. So expect it. Trust God through it. And keep walking step by step, day by day. And you'll get through it. Some of you are really thinking about this card because you made a commitment 12 months ago and you're wondering, with all that's happened, did I miss God or did God mislead me or has God failed me? Can I just say something to you? Beverly and I know about suddenness, difficulties, troubles and trials. But we're learning day by day to trust God no matter what the phone brings, the mailman brings. The internet brings, or the weatherman brings. We're just learning to just keep putting one foot in front of the other and trusting the Lord to walk it out, believing that he's going to work it out. I want to urge you and encourage you to have the same faith you started this journey with to finish it. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So, don't be shocked. Trust him and keep walking. Keep walking. The church was opposed and persecuted. Not inconvenience, I would add. Not just made to feel uncomfortable. Their very lives were threatened. What did they do next? If that's what matters. If that's where the impact is. If that's what makes the difference. What did they do next? Notice verse 4. Let me read it for you. Now those who were scattered. So it's happened. And all that adversity and opposition has come to a point and they've been driven out. As they were scattered, went about, here's what they did, went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. There was so much joy in that city where Philip was driven to. Oh, yes, the church faced adversity, but God turned their adversity into opportunity. Into opportunity, right? The church was scattered, can't deny that. That point may sound vaguely familiar to you from the last uh, movement. For sure, it's the same. Because the church was scattered. That's a negative that God turned into a positive. In fact, the very word that's used here is the word that's used to scatter seed. Seed. 
So yes, when the wind of adversity blew in and blew all those seeds out of Jerusalem, those seeds were blown out to be sown in to new soil. What's happening here is a spreading, a spreading, a casting out, a scattering of the seed. You know, you can say to a farmer, oh my goodness, you failure, you scattered your seed. And he say, what are you talking about? This is what I'm supposed to do. Every spring, I just scatter the seed. It's not meant to be gathered into barn. Seed is meant to be scattered into the field. The same word that we would have read in verse 1 and 3 is a terrible, hard thing the church had to face. You've been scattered. Oh, wait, you mean we've been scattered? Just a few verses later. Yes, you've been scattered. The church was scattered. It's a positive thing. It means the seed was spread throughout Judea and Samaria. And further, as we'll see next week, to the Literally to the ends of the earth. So what we see is they were gathered for a purpose. That purpose now being complete, they are now scattered for a purpose to be sown and to be multiplied. Which in fact, if we read in Acts 9.31, just getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, let me fast forward. Acts 9, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. This is after the scattering. And they were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It, the church, multiplied. So you see what's happening here. This church cannot be multiplied, gathered. It has to be scattered in order to be sown, in order to be producing a harvest and to bring in a multiplied return on the investment of that seed. The church was scattered. That's a good thing. And secondly, you'll notice they preached the gospel as they went, everywhere they went, such that it seems everything that was happening in Jerusalem that was good was just preparation for what would happen outside of Jerusalem. Outside of Jerusalem. In Acts 8, 4, the Bible says he preached, or the literal verb here is to good news them. (laughs) To good news them. He good newsed them. In verse 5, Philip proclaimed the gospel that's like a herald would or or to make a grand announcement. Uh, Neither, by the way, restricts good newsing to theologically trained or to professional pastors. Good newsing is something anybody can do. You, you, let me, raise your right hand. Everybody raise your right hand. Wake up, wake up, wake up, raise your right hand. I am officially now deputizing you as a good newser. Okay, you're a good newser. And you are now deputized and authorized to good news anybody, anywhere, anytime, period. You're authorized. You got me? Do you accept your responsibility? Say, I'm a good newser. Done. So you don't need a title. You don't need a degree. You don't need a business card. You don't need an office. You don't need a job down at the church. If you're a Christian, you're a good newser. Welcome to the Good News Club. That's all Philip did. Philip was an apostle. Philip never been to seminary. Philip didn't have a title, position, except deacon to wait tables. And here he's out sharing the gospel to anyone that's willing to listen. Philip went down to Samaria, in fact. Down to Samaria, in spite of the fact Samaria was north of Jerusalem. May give you some indication of how they felt about Samaria. And Philip, again, as a deacon, is first a servant of Jesus. So it appears that serving Christ means sharing Christ. Which means, if Philip had wanted to say, well, you know, positionally and title-wise, I'm a deacon, so I'm to wait tables and take care of the widows here at the table... But apparently, he understood that regardless of title or current assignment, he and everyone has the good news responsibility to share the good news of the gospel. So he went down to Samaria. 
He went down to Samaria. You can't just pass that off. Samaritans, they hated them. They were half-breed heretics to them and vice versa. We see here, of course, and we'll spend some more time on this in the coming weeks, the gospel is a great equalizer, isn't it? The gospel is a great equalizer. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter where you're from. doesn't matter the language you speak, the color of your skin, your cultural, your ethnic background, or what college football team you cheer for. <laughs> the good news is good news for everybody. Like Billy Graham said, the ground at the cross is level ground. There's no white and black here. There's no Hispanic, Asian, American, Caucasian. There are no titles here except one, sinners, all in need of a Savior in Jesus Christ. Philip went down to Samaria. Where's your Samaria, by the way? Where's your Samaria? Where's that place and where are those people that would be the last on your list to go to first? Where's your Samaria? Philip went down to Samaria. Where are you going down to when you go out of here today? Everybody's got a Samaria. Come on, admit it. Come on. Everybody's got somebody. They just, oh, I could never. Might be a family member. Might be a next-door neighbor, somebody across town. Might be a people group. I could never. Oh, I just can't even imagine that person getting saved. Oh, you don't have a big enough God, friend. I just can't imagine God doing something in that group or those people or in that man's life. That lady's like, I just can't. Oh, get a bigger God, man. Get a God who's big enough to save people like Saul of Tarsus and David Fleming of Winter Garden. Get a big God who saves big sinners from big sin because he's a big savior. And all he's given is all sufficient for all of us sinners. I don't know who your Samaritan is or where your Samaria may be, but I want to give you three closing points for application and we'll wrap this up. Number one, sharing the gospel is our joy and responsibility. Would you say our with me? I'm so glad you didn't say Pastor David's or the ministry staff or our deacons or our life group leaders. It's our. There's not a single one of us who are following Christ excluded from the privilege or responsibility of sharing Christ. I know the apostles were the sent ones, but so is everyone else. Every follower is to be a fisher of men. Every worshiper is to be a witness. Every disciple is to be a disciple maker. That's the call. That's the command. That's the commission. All of us. And yes, we have different gifts and abilities. We can't all do the same thing in the same way. But I tell you, whatever we can do, we ought to be doing for the sake of the Great Commission and seeing people come to faith in Jesus. There are lots of things, remember, the church can do, should do, but there's only one thing we can do that we'll no longer be able to do in eternity. And that's win lost people to Jesus. That's a priority, folks. Jesus made it one for us. And we're all to share our faith with joy and responsibility. And can I just tell you that a healthy, flourishing, growing church is a gospel-committed, gospel-preaching and teaching, gospel-living and gospel-sharing church. We can never get away from the gospel. Number two, point for application. Sharing the gospel is our joy and responsibility. And number two, we got to go out to get the word out. we got to go out of here to get the word out of here. You say, well, duh, I hope you're going to let us go out of here in a minute because I'm already tired of this sermon. I'm ready to go out right now. But I want you to understand why you're here before we let you go out there. You see, the church is gathered in preparation for what it does when it's scattered More than a place to run to when you're running away from the real world. The church is more than a 
a place to hang out and hide out, a place is to be trained up and equipped up, to be discipled. And ultimately, the church is a place to be sent out from on mission to a world that's waiting and watching and wanting to know, is there anything real and true? And the true impact of our church, folks, you know this is more than what happens in here on Sunday. Lots more. Far more. Oh, Lord, I hope it's more than what we're able to accomplish in an hour or so a week. The impact of the church is felt on Monday and every other day of the week. And those signs out there, folks, they're serious. It's not not just cute. It's not just a joke. It's more than a cliche. You are now entering your mission field means exactly that. When you and I leave the church from the service of the church, the church service begins in earnest. Going out there throughout the week on mission with intentionality, that's where the church makes its greatest impact. Can I show you something that might encourage you? Northwest Houston is within range. Uh, Look at this first slide. This is a heat map, if you will, from about I-10 in the center of Houston all the way up past Conroe. And and those are you. (laughs) The the bright green and then the yellow and then the red indicate density or intensity of membership. So you can see we've, we've got Northwest Houston in our sights. We look a little closer if we just looked at, say, from 99 down to Jersey Village. Let's take the next slide. Then we, we could see, boy, you know what? Getting up there at North Klein and getting down there at Jersey Village really helped us pull together this mission field and really maximize our impact across Northwest Houston. That's amazing. Now, if we go in a little bit further and begin to look just at the Champions Campus, you'll notice something. That's just this immediate from 249 or so up to 2920 and south. You start to see some areas of opportunity here, don't you? Uh, To the southeast and to the northwest, lots of opportunity. And if we go one more slide, we'll go even a little closer. You can see there are opportunities to reach people for Jesus and to welcome new members into the fellowship, the body of Christ here at Champion Forest, right around our church to the southeast, to the northwest, and there are little dots all throughout our immediate ministry area where we can reach people for Jesus. Here's the key. we got to go out of here to get the gospel out there. And in a few minutes when we say in Jesus' name, amen, you might stop by your life group on the way out. I hope you will. And then when they say in Jesus' name, amen, you get in the parking lot, you'll be patient as you leave the facilities today. And as you head to lunch, here's what you'll know. I am a missionary on mission in my mission field, and here I go. Let me tell you something. All those those points, all those dots, that heat, that red, yellow, and green, it only matters if those addresses are, in fact, points of light in an otherwise dark community. It only matters if our homes and addresses are truly lighthouses for for the sake of the gospel in all of those neighborhoods. I love to hear stories, like stories of the Allens or the Crownovers or, or the Bears. I go on all day about people who've claimed their streets and their neighborhoods for Jesus, praying over their neighbors, getting to know them, baking them cookies, buying them tickets, and taking them to gospel-centered events. Hey, I want to ask you a question. Is that your Samaria? Have you been driving over and out of your Samaria on your way to Jerusalem every week? Let me close with this. God goes with us as we go. As we scatter, God is with us to gather. I want to tell you that I'm often asked, Pastor, where do you sense the presence of God in your life and in your ministry the most? And I'd love to say it's in the study and preparing to preach because I certainly sense his presence. And in the process and act of preaching, I really do. I sense the presence of God. But I want to tell you something. 
when I engage a lost person with the gospel and have a gospel conversation and my heart rate goes up and, and my nervousness builds and I, and, and I start thinking and, and the spirit starts working and the devil's, in that moment, I want to tell you right now, I have the strongest sense of the presence of God than in anything else I do when I am sharing the good news of Jesus. And that is exactly what Jesus promised. I will be with you even to the ends of the earth. Can I just challenge you with this? If you, listen to me carefully and we're done. If you want to know God, if you want to truly experience God, if you want to know him for who he is and experiencing for the reality that he is, listen to me carefully. It's not going to happen primarily and certainly not only in here. Sorry, Pastor Brent, but he knows my heart. I know his. We know the scripture. Listen to me carefully. If that's true, we should be sad for ourselves. Because we're here one hour and 10, 12 minutes out of 168 all week. That's less than 1%. When we are gathered, incredible and amazing things happen. And God does visit us. But let me tell you, all of this is in preparation for the other 167 hours of your week where God wants to meet you, walk with you, work through you, use you, reveal himself to you. You see, we've got to be scattered, immersed in this lost world, dispersed across this community, our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria. We've got to get out of here, folks, to find out where with whom and when God is working and get in on what God is doing. Can I just get you to start thinking that when you're out there in the world and you're thinking about coming to church on Sunday, I love that and I hope you make a commitment to do it every week, but while we're here, let's get our eyes on out there and realize this is a training and equipping center because in a minute we're going to be scattered. In a minute we're going to go in a minute, we're going to be gone. But let me tell you something. God is already there. And he is working. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray that the truth of God's word is both encouraging and uplifting to you. If you'd like more information about our church, service times, or locations, or if you have a question about what you heard today and you want to connect with someone, I want to encourage you to visit us on our website at Champion Forest. Dot org. Have a great day and God bless.